Saudi Arabia is playing the long game, putting money into sports as part of a national rebranding project. Google gets taken to court by the US government for monopolizing our internet searches, plus preaching the gospel of atheism in America on YouTube. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. It's been Saudi Arabia's summer of sports. For months, the Saudi Football League, backed by big oil money from the state, has been luring star players away from European teams. Names like Neymar, Ronaldo, and Benzema have made their way to the kingdom for extortionate sums. Investment in sports, and not just football, has become a priority in Riyadh part of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's strategy to diversify the country's oil-dependent economy and reshape its brand. Analysts accuse the Saudis of sports washing, using athletes to distract attention from the kingdom's poor record on human rights. That is not to say that some progress hasn't been made. Bin Salman is pushing through a program that is reforming religious institutions, making incremental changes to women's rights and opening up employment for young Saudis. The right to dissent, however, still does not exist. Just how deep will Saudi Arabia's reforms go? And how effective will sports prove to be as a tool to rebrand the kingdom? Cristiano Ronaldo has joined Saudi Arabian club Al Masar. Football, golf, horse racing, wrestling, boxing, Formula One. And the Saudi Grand Prix is go! Name a sport, and chances are Saudi Arabia has recently pumped plenty of oil money into it. It's great for the city. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, they have got human rights issues. Everyone knows that. Um, but we need this. Investments that aren't necessarily about only economic returns. The Saudis and the crown prince known as MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, are also looking for a different kind of payoff. Sports are now a central component of the country's long-term political strategy, an exercise in national rebranding known as Vision 2030. But a lot of it has to do with the role that sports plays in modern societies. This kind of intertwining of financial interests, of cultural interests, means that it becomes far more difficult to challenge Saudi Arabia in a number of other fields, whether we're talking about energy prices or some of the more uh, aggressive foreign policy goals that the Crown Prince has been pursuing for this entire period. What's happening now in Saudi Arabia undeniably is transformative. Saudi is trying to diversify its economy away from oil, to find other sources of jobs for citizens and, and to shift the economy away from hydrocarbons. That's one piece. The other piece is cultural and social, shifting the country away from the very austere brand of Islam that has defined Saudi society for generations, like allowing women to drive, encouraging them to enter the workforce, allowing concerts and raves, uh, and trying to reorient Saudi society towards an identity that is based more on nationalism. A lot of uh, human rights activists do point out that despite all these social reforms, women's rights defenders and minorities and human rights advocates have been thrown in jail. You know, freedom of expression is still a major issue in Saudi Arabia. So with regards to how transformational MBS's reforms over the last six years are, you know, the jury's still out. Saudi Arabia is not the first country to resort to sports washing to enhance its reputation. 
It's just that in recent years, there has been a lot to clean up. The murder in 2018 of the exiled journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was once a loyalist and then turned into a critic of bin Salman's policies. The Saudi-led military intervention in Yemen that started in 2015 and helped transform a civil war into a quagmire that has claimed close to 400,000 lives. Saudi Arabia's continued support of authoritarian regimes in the Arab world while repressing political dissent within. Only two months ago, a court in Riyadh convicted a man with only 10 Twitter followers for his anti-government posts and sentenced him to death. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. In 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden came to office promising to treat Saudi Arabia as an outcast. And then oil prices went up. Last year, Joe Biden met MBS in Saudi Arabia and very famously fist bumped him. And that was an image that was shared all across the world. One of the major things that changed last year was the Ukraine-Russia war, which had a huge impact on oil prices. So the conversation has moved on. And while there were moral objections after the death of Khashoggi, now with the changing kind of global financial situations, those moral objections have kind of been shifted to the side uh, and it's business as usual. Hands off Yemen! The first thing that's changed is just time. Uh, five years have gone by since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The war in Yemen uh, has fallen into a lull. There's a ceasefire in place. And the furor over these things that you saw five, six, seven years ago has faded somewhat. Another thing that's changed has been at a political level. Countries that once isolated Saudi Arabia have changed their tune. Joe Biden was very frosty towards the kingdom for the first year or so, but then oil prices climbed and he decided that he needed to have a better relationship with the Saudis. The third thing is, frankly, there's just a lot of money on the table and that's hard to walk away from uh, if you are in business. Harder still if you're an athlete being enticed by a huge contract like Cristiano Ronaldo, the aging Portuguese superstar. Late last year, having played for mega teams like Real Madrid and Manchester United, he said playing in the Saudi league was a non-starter. If it was just about money, you'd be, you'd be in Saudi Arabia, right, earning this king's ransom, but you, that's not what motivates you. You want to keep at the top. Exactly, because I thought, I, I, I still believe that I can score many, many goals and helped the team. One month later, Ronaldo signed the richest contract in football history with Al Nasser in Riyadh. It's worth 200 million euros a year, 90 million for what he does on the pitch, the rest in commercial sponsorships. Which means Ronaldo won't just be playing in Saudi Arabia, he will also be part of the country's PR push. I want to give a different vision um, of the country, of the football, the perspective of everybody. When it was just simply one player, you know, like Cristiano Ronaldo being the first signed before we saw any of these other string of deals, a lot more questions were being asked of why would someone go to a league that clearly is not up to the same standard, especially a global superstar and an icon in that sense. But we're even hearing from NBA stars who are saying, you know, when can we 
be invited to Saudi Arabia. Money definitely talks and it's able to bring a lot of people into the kingdom. They were able to bring not only some very prominent and more aging uh, football stars, but also to start to attract even younger, promising talent. This is definitely something new to see these top players going to uh, a league that's outside of Europe. But now all of the different journalists across Europe and the United States are talking about the Saudi League at the same time that they're talking about these other European leagues. And I think that's exactly what the Saudis want. They're an ambitious nation. They want to be at the center of all of these different networks. Permeating the coverage of this story is the unmistakable odor of double standards, blowing in yet again from a westerly direction. Sports pundits have been indignant, accusing the Saudi League of poaching players from Europe, calling for bans on such transfers. Apparently, poaching doesn't matter when it's European League scouring the playing fields of South America or Africa. They've plundered the Global South for footballing talent for decades. What sets Saudi Arabia apart is that these investments have come from the state. And how is it that when America is chosen to stage the World Cup or the UK hosts the Olympics, their politics never get this kind of scrutiny? Western journalists don't raise issues like the Iraq War or Guantanamo Bay. You don't have to be a fan of MBS to wonder why, as far as the international media are concerned, the Saudis seem to be in a league of their own. The investment was so huge that I think the Saudi League was actually the second largest investor uh, within the transfer market. So there was uh, some anxiety about that, some sort of, could call it Orientalism or sort of cultural unease with that. But you have to understand that this is also due to the fact that this is a state that is investing. And especially when Saudi Arabia looks to be doing this for a number of years to come, I think everyone just realizes that this is something new that they're going to have to deal with. There is a very specific double standard that is applied to the Middle East. It's the most controversial World Cup in history. If you look at uh, the World Cup last year, there was a level of criticism aimed at Qatar that wasn't aimed at Russia when it hosted the World Cup. Uh, or China when it hosted the Olympics in Beijing. Unquestionably, both of those countries have far worse human rights records than Qatar does, but there was a, a real level of criticism aimed at last year's World Cup that wasn't applied to previous ones. So I think it's particularly aimed at the Middle East. But part of this, I think, is, is a deeper recognition that's taking place within Europe and within North America to an extent that the center of power really is shifting in terms of culture and the fact that we're no longer seeing simply just a kind of a cultural hub in Europe as far as football is concerned. Those other leagues is coming from a sense of entitlement, right? That somehow this game belongs to them. But if it's truly a global game, then the idea is that there really shouldn't matter. Turning to the U.S. now, where the government launched a significant legal case this past week against the tech behemoth, Google. Flo Phillips is here with the details. This trial is being called the first major antitrust case of the 21st century, and it's about as big as they come. Antitrust refers to laws countries have put in place to prevent any single company from having a monopoly, controlling a market or industry by preventing competitors from having a fair shot. From the regulator's perspective, monopolies can make people reliant on just one company for essential services, like searching for information online. That's why this past Tuesday, the US Department of Justice launched its case against Google.
What we've gleaned so far is that Google paid upwards of $10 billion a year to other tech companies like Apple and Samsung to make Google their default search engine. Google does the same on its own widely used Android phones. And that, according to the prosecution, is an unfair advantage. But Google isn't the only tech giant on the legal radar right now. Over the past couple of months, the European Union approved two key legislation packages, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, aimed at keeping big corporations, Google included, from exploiting their size and forcing online platforms to be responsible for content posted. Google says its success comes down to, quote, the quality of its products, the exact same defense that was used by the only other tech giant to face an antitrust case of this kind, Microsoft, back in 1998. That trial, which drew intense media coverage, centered around Internet Explorer, Microsoft's browser. The company was found guilty of breaking competition rules, and it was forced to allow users to install rival software more easily. Rivals such as Google. Thanks, Flo. At the risk of getting existential a question, is God real? Some people in search of the answer are going onto YouTube. All kinds of channels there are dedicated to debates around faith and religion. Content creators explain and promote various religions. And there's also a sizable community on an atheistically different mission to explain why they don't believe in God. Their videos can range from how they came to that conclusion to critiques of what they argue is the harmful role religion can play in politics and society. Atheists are a minority in every country, but it's a growing worldview, including among Americans. Still, being an atheist in many parts of the U.S. can be downright unacceptable. The Listening Post's Ryan Coles now on Atheism in America and the country's godless apostles on YouTube. Drew McCoy is one of hundreds of thousands of Americans making a living on YouTube. He might look like a typical millennial YouTuber, but the nature of his videos are a little different. I feel like this one could get me in hot water. When McCoy, better known as genetically modified skeptic, turns the mic on, the content can be controversial and to some, highly offensive. The very idea of a Christian Bible was invented by a flawed human being. If you're going to hell in every religion, I definitely want to hear about why. Without sufficient reason to believe Christianity was true, though, I had to leave all of that behind. When I became an atheist, I couldn't tell anyone, because that would mean that I was not only rejecting their personal Lord and Savior, but I was maybe even rejecting them as individuals. That is how my evangelical community would have taken it. I was raised independent, fundamental Baptist. That meant that we believed that the end times were near, that the earth was created in six literal days by God about 6,000 years ago. Some of the things that I was taught, I started to question. I didn't have anyone in real life to talk to about issues of religion and atheism. So I decided that maybe I could go online and express myself freely if that was really the only place I could do it. Until next time, everyone, keep an open mind and stay skeptical. Drew is certainly not alone. He's part of a wider community of atheists in the United States who found a sanctuary on YouTube. I'm John Gleason, the Godless Engineer. There's a slew of popular channels with millions of viewers 
dedicated exclusively to articulating the atheist worldview. I don't think it's knowable if a god exists. And challenging religious narratives for the approximately 10% of Americans that openly identify as non-believers. If religious people want us to believe in God, then the burden of proof is on them. In the US, most atheist YouTubers have a very similar origin story. They were once ardent believers and grew up in strict Christian communities. Now they feel compelled to defend their godless worldview, often in the face of great adversity. People who come out of a, especially a dogmatic, fundamentalist, high control faith, they come out and they've got a real fire in their belly and they look for an outlet and YouTube provides that. But if you want to read a book to really make you an atheist, I'm going to recommend the Bible. You can have the long-form exchange. You can develop a relationship with the viewer. If you see a debate show, like The Atheist Experience, they welcome religious people to call in and they challenge them directly. Over 75% of all scholars and, and historians can agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. Well, okay, so first right? first of all, 93% of all statistics are pulled right out of somebody's at the time that they need to use them. The types of interactions you get will vary based on the type of channel that it is. Street epistemology will get just the curious. <laughs> um, do you have like five minutes to just have a conversation yeah. about God? Sure. I am most interested in what I call kind of the seekers. I was a believer for a long time and I don't know. I've got doubts, but I just Googled atheist and your channel popped up. They needed to find this online community because they don't have the people around them who understand their experiences. The American religion is faith in faith. And so people who don't believe anything, they're scary to a lot of Americans, particularly American Christians. Where a state is dominated by Christians, that's where it's harder to be an atheist. You may not be able to tell your family because it might not be safe you might lose your job. So it is difficult to be an atheist in much of America. Except online, where YouTube has provided a diverse space for atheist thought. You can pick and choose the style and tone of content. In the early days, however, it was a space dominated by predominantly snarky white men who ridiculed religion and the religious, a tone largely set by the so-called new atheists, thought leaders like Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins. Obviously, I do not share your beliefs, and I think you are hallucinating. A celestial North Korea. <laughs> Who wants this to be true? They inspired a new generation of non-believers, deploying blistering debate tactics that were soon emulated by YouTubers. In recent years, those tactics have shifted. Seth Andrews witnessed the evolution. He was there from the beginning. The temperature of atheist activism back then was a lot more mockery of religion. You know, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. And you need to grow up and accept reality. Because Christianity is just a cult and it's not true. Oh, the Bible is the imperfect word of man. It's divinely inspired. I think a lot of us had the delusion that you can mock people out of their faith. But if you can make them feel safe, and if they make me feel safe, that's when conversations begin. And I think online atheism and activism, I think we sort of woke up to that. You need to be able to have good faith conversations uh, with, with people who don't share your non-belief. Uh, you need to have a more nuanced understanding of religion. 
If you would rather not question essential parts of your faith, that's your prerogative. But don't paint others as unreasonable or immoral for being open to questioning theirs. One of my missions, one of my goals now, has become to make content that, while not pulling punches when I'm criticizing religion, I am taking a tone that someone's mom would be able to listen to and maybe even resonate with. I want to be so clearly compassionate and so clearly human in what I'm saying that it's impossible to dehumanize me. Around the election of Donald Trump, a lot of us saw that talking about secularism with compassion, with kindness, was so necessary if we wanted to mend the relationships that were constantly being broken by the division in our country. That was the way that was actually going to get things done. I think that that attitude of compassion over vitriol has won out overall when it comes to atheist YouTube culture today. If you place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand... And... Some American atheists may be softening their approach to fight for a pluralistic society, but it's an uphill battle in a country that's not only a majority Christian nation, that I will faithfully execute... but affords Christianity a certain privilege higher political calling. So help you God? So help me God. And one element with outsized political influence in recent years is Christian nationalism. This fringe ideology insists that the U.S. is a Christian nation, one that should be governed by biblical principles, despite a clear separation of church and state in the Constitution. This movement is now a central target for atheists on YouTube. This is something that we must fight. And I have joined not just other atheists, but people of other religions and even Christians. So you're a Christian, but you and I join in being critics and sounding the alarms about Christian nationalists. Absolutely, we are allies in this cause. I'm not an enemy of Christians. I am surrounded by Christians, and they are, in many cases, the most important people in my life. I will fight for someone's right to be religious. When I engage is when they claim that the nation belongs to them. Engaging in these religious debates isn't exactly easy. People like Andrews and McCoy made the difficult decision to tell their truths. Now they're on a mission, spreading the word and pushing for a future where others in the so-called land of the free can express themselves without fear. People have communicated to me that if they were to be public in the way that I am, that they would be kicked out of their homes, that they'd be disowned. I've also had people tell me that watching my videos made them realize that there are other people who think the way that they think and that that's okay. I don't want every religious person to become an atheist. The world wouldn't be better if we were all atheists. But the world would be better if we were all able to critique the beliefs that we were programmed with by our surrounding culture. And finally, a plot twist from a Hollywood actor that went viral. Woody Harrelson delivered this little speech, more like a satirical bit, at last year's film festival in Cannes when promoting a movie. At the time, Russia was just a few months into its war in Ukraine. And that's where reporters thought Harrelson was going with his take on the dangers of imperialism. His 30-second breakdown of geopolitics got revived on social media this past week. 
because of the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in 2001. Can you see where this one's going? We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. How I feel about the character, uh, uh, but you know, the character's a Marxist. I'm not a Marxist, I'm an uh, anarchist. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so in that sense, we differ. You know, I'm the kind of guy who just thinks it's abominable when a superpower with all this military might, with no provocation, you know, attacks a, uh, you know, uh, just unprovoked attacks uh, a, a country that is, uh, you know, like, like, you know, Iraq, uh, sorry, Afghan, I'm, I'm sorry, Viet, <laughs> Korea, no, sorry, Ukraine. Uh,